And so I actually have my own list of, you know, when I hear a piece that I've never heard before, regardless of the composer or if they're standard, I make a list and I write it down. And so I have these lists for my students and I'm like, hey, go to the underrepresented composers list and pick something. And it's all categorized um, for them to see different people from all over the world, all ethnicities and genders that they can choose. So that's kind of what I do. And I make them pick at least one. <laughs> I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Artina McCain. Described as a pianist with power and finesse by Dallas Arts Society, beautiful and fiery by KMFA Austin, and having a sense of color, balance, and texture by Austin Chamber Music Center, Artina McCain has built a three-fold career as a performer, educator, and speaker. Recent performance highlights include guest appearances with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Oregon East Symphony, and the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. As a recitalist, her credits include performances at the Mahidol University in Bangkok, Hatch Recital Hall in Rochester, and in 2022, her debut at Wigmore Hall in London. Dedicated to promoting the works of Black and other underrepresented composers, McCain curates Black composers' concerts for multiple arts organizations and is an American Prize winner for her solo piano recordings of these works. Recently, she won a Gold Global Music Award for her recent solo album project, Heritage. Currently, she is coordinator of keyboard studies at the University of Memphis. Artina McCain is a Yamaha artist. Now on to the interview. Artina, thanks so much for joining today. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Ben. I'm excited. Great. I want to start off before we talk about your teaching is talking about your uh, childhood and your experience with piano lessons. I read that you've described your lessons as traditional, um, but I want to know a little bit more about that. So in retrospect, how do you assess this kind of traditional training you received? And is there anything from the lessons you had growing up that you consciously try to imitate or avoid in your own teaching? Well, never avoid, only improve. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, well, you know, um, as far as my childhood music training, my grandmother played piano. So that was, I guess, my my one gene <laughs> that made it down okay. to me for music. And I started piano lessons actually at age six for the first time. And it was just for fun. You know, we took from the neighborhood teacher. I don't remember anything about it, except for she gave me stickers. So <laughs> I can't make any comments. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I, I think, you know, Maybe she um, was sick or ill. My mom decided to move on. So then there was a little bit of a gap. And then I started again at age nine. And, and that was really my first, you know, real memories of my piano lessons. And at age nine, after having, haven't taken for, you know, some years, I was really starting over. So, okay. I, you know, I enjoyed all of my music lessons. I say maybe traditional because I used, you know, method books for some right. of the old heads out there. I was in the David Glover. Okay. So it's a, and um, so that's a really old school method. And, you know, it was just really fun. I don't think I started off piano thinking, oh, I'm going to be a concert artist one day. It's just, my mother didn't like my singing. And so she's like, let's put her in piano lessons. Um, so I was the same way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, when I was young, I didn't, I wasn't really assessing the lessons, like whether, oh, this is good or bad. You know, I, the, I, one thing I can say is when I was a child, I was a really fast reader. So I just like zoom, I just ate up method books, you know, like one book every couple of months. <laughs> so Whoa. I was really finished with method books 
in a few years, or at least this, you know, this beginning to intermediate series. So after that, I just went straight for rep. <laughs> it was just like, okay, she finished this. Let's go to Beethoven sonatas. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's go to a little bit later on. So then you went to college, um, of course, uh, in music, and then you did masters and then all the way to a doctorate, I believe in mm -hmm. piano performance. So what about those lessons? Is there anything from those lessons that stuck out that has informed your teaching approach today? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll talk about a lot of the things that were amazing. First of all, I really liked that all my teachers demonstrated for me. So that was really cool. After my first teacher, all of my teachers played to some degree or were, you know, able to perform and able to show me and demonstrate. And so I think for myself, just the type of learner I was, I was just a sponge. I like to soak everything in. So, you know, I would read the notes on the page and then to have somebody be able to demonstrate, you know, moderately, of course, we're not going to play everything on piano, but even just a few demonstrations, I think was really awesome. And that's something I take into my teaching today. I have some really amazing mentors. And that to me is really important as a teacher, especially as I got into collegiate level uh, undergrad, my master's degree and my, and my doctorate degree. I just had some professors really take a personal interest in me and in making sure that I have the proper connections and the proper training outside of the piano in order to build a career. And so I think for myself, that's probably the biggest thing I've taken from my lessons outside of just the technical. Yeah, I'm training. so sorry to interrupt. Can you clarify what you mean by outside of the piano? Absolutely. So of course, when we go to our lessons, we want to learn good technique, good phrasing, good rhythm, all the things, mm -hmm. right? And I think sometimes as you grow up in your lessons and you're actually going for a more serious career, it's really important to have someone that can kind of tell you and show you the ropes, right? <laughs> you know, it's not all about talent. A lot of it's about being a great human being, about mm. having good personal skills, good soft skills, I like to say, uh, being able to communicate and network, and also to be able to find your own voice as an artist, because there's so many really good pianists, right? I mean, at some point, we can all play fast. <laughs> you know, everybody's doing Rachmaninoff <laughs> okay. and Chopin etudes. I mean, it's not impressive anymore. So at some point, you have to be able to find your own voice. And I think that's what my collegiate teachers were able to do for me. Yeah, I want to stay on this idea of finding your own voice and how that works for students as well as seasoned professionals such as you. So one area where, of course, I think this is very intertwined with finding your own voice is what repertoire you choose. And I was recently listening to your latest album, Heritage, which obviously as you were saying, is not just, okay, look, here's another pianist who can do Rachmaninoff and Beethoven, although you can do that too, but you're not limiting yourself to that. So staying this on, on this idea of repertoire, can you talk about sort of the overlap between how you find repertoire for yourself and how you work with students on selecting repertoire where you're not just plugging everyone into a formula and you're really helping them find their own voice? Absolutely. That's a great question, Ben. So of course I love the formula because I did it. You know, I think yeah. our formula is, you know, Baroque, classical, romantic, some contemporary. Of course you should throw in some exercises, some hand, hand and charity, some other etudes. But outside of that, 
traditional repertoire or sometimes what we call the standard repertoire there are so much other repertoire i mean it's almost cruel when you start to dive in and you realize how much stuff that's out there that we've excluded or unintentionally not programmed in the canon so uh, you know i mean i can tell you a little bit about my own story of how i started to you know find these things, you know, I wanted to, especially as a younger pianist in school, I wanted to compete. I wanted to do all these things. I was very hungry. So I went to lots of different competitions and I met another pianist there that happened to be African-American. And he told me about George Walker. I never heard of George Walker. Many of your listeners probably at this point have. Only because he he passed away recently, right? He did of pass course, away. So. Yeah. And he's his centennial is actually next year. So, okay. so uh, many people are starting to hear more about George Walker. More orchestras are playing his lyric for strings. But at the time, I never heard of George Walker. I didn't know he was a Pulitzer Prize winning composer. He had multiple, he wrote multiple sonatas. And so he said, hey, you know, you should try some George Walker. It would be great competition music. It's really hard. You know, that's like all conservatory students want is like, what's the hardest thing I can play, you know, to win. And so I said, okay, sure. That sounds good. So I started playing his Sonata number one, Um, you know, and then later as I moved through my graduate studies, I was at Cleveland Institute of Music when I sort of picked up my first black composer. And then I learned about Margaret Bonds. A lot of your listeners may have started to hear about her and I played her Trouble Water. And then as I moved through my career and I studied with Antonella, at the uh, University of Texas at Austin. And he was so about us finding our own voice. And, you know, another teacher said, we don't need another recording of Beethoven sonatas. They've been done before. So you might wanna find something else to record. And so I really just started to dive deeper and deeper into chamber music. And I recorded an album with I.C. Monroe of African-American art songs and spirituals. And I don't know, I just drank the Kool-Aid bin. And then once you drink it, you just keep going down the kind of down the rabbit hole. So that's kind of how I got introduced to more underrepresented composers. And so now when I teach, I want my students to have these experiences and not just necessarily only with black composers, but there's such a large canon, even standard composers works that we don't play. You know, I make the, we always play the same Clementi Sonata. Clementi wrote hundreds of sonatas, you know, there's so many things to choose from. And so I actually have my own list of, you know, when I hear a piece that I've never heard before, regardless of the composer or if they're standard, I make a list and I write it down. And so I have these lists for my students and I'm like, hey, go to the underrepresented composers list and pick something. And it's all categorized um, for them to see different people from all over the world, all ethnicities and genders that they can choose. So that's kind of what I do. And I make them pick at least one. Interesting. So you actually have a like, concrete list of underrepresented composers and works that you in the lesson show the student and then make them pick a song from that list. I don't want to say make, but encourage. (laughs) Heavily suggest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love that. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, And so earlier you were mentioning um, that once you sort of went down this, I don't want to say rabbit hole, but of, of you said drank the Kool-Aid of kind of finding these pieces of yours that included African-American songs and spirituals. So 
for teachers who might want to use this type of repertoire for their students, you recently published an arrangement, I think it was with Hal Leonard of African American Folk Songs. Can you talk about these arrangements a little bit? Yeah, that was such a cool project. So I will say, Ben, I am not an arranger. I wouldn't consider myself an arranger, but you know, Hal Leonard was like, yes, you can do it. So, okay. So I wrote, I, I arranged these 24 traditional African American folk songs and I had to do research. I mean, many of them, myself being African American and descendants of slaves in this country, I heard a lot of these tunes growing up in church. Sometimes my grandmother would sing some of these. So I knew some that I was like, oh, I definitely want to arrange that. But then I wanted to, you know, broaden the, my own horizons and learn more. So one of the sources that I used was Samuel Coleridge Taylor's 24 Negro Melodies, which is very popular. And maybe you know the story. He's Afro-British. He actually found out that he also was descendants of slaves through his father. And so in the early 20th century, he came and did several tours of America where he heard the songs of Negro people and was like, I gotta be the next Dvorak and do these songs, okay? So he really gave a voice to Black Americans during that time and um, setting these songs. So I play some of the songs already, but I just dug a little deeper into the 24 that he had wrote. And I picked a couple of those and I went even further down the rabbit hole and, and even found some of their African origins and different things that people were doing. And those notes are actually in the book. Yeah, that was <laughs> going to be my next question if you talked about any of that in the book. I did. So we have a little bit of program notes at the beginning. It explains what each of the songs were in the text. And so that was really fun, actually, for me to just find the origins of these songs, not only in America, but some of their African roots, too. So, you know, there's things that people know and love, like Wade in the Water. You know, Margaret Bonds has an arrangement of that, obviously, as well. Um, right on King Jesus, lift every voice and sing every time I feel the spirit. And something else that I wanted to incorporate was the book was the element of rhythm. So you'll see like hand claps and stomps and, hmm. you know, I wish I, I forgot then to put ad lib, but if you get the book and you want to do more rhythm or drum beats, you should just go and have fun because that's also really important in the tradition. Yeah, it's important in the tradition. And I also think it's very helpful pedagogically for the students to get all these different sort of sources of rhythm. Uh, so staying on this book, so I did an interview on this podcast once, but I don't know if this is a name you know, Dr. Leah Claiborne. Yeah. Uh, oh, you do know her. Okay. So I was of doing course. an interview with her on kind of using diverse repertoire. And one point that she kind of insisted on was in the same way that if we're going to teach Beethoven, you would of course never approach a student with Beethoven just uh, you know, from Googling Beethoven and just reading a few sentences, you would do research on Beethoven. And it's kind of assumed that when we give a student a piece by Beethoven, we know about Beethoven. So if a teacher is using this book of yours in their studio, can you talk about sort of what's if you suggest any kind of external research, or if you think it's all there in the book, or just any advice for teachers to use this repertoire in a way where it comes from an informed perspective and you're really giving the student all the information they need as opposed to just a teacher deciding, okay, I want to use more diverse repertoire. Oh, I see this book. Okay. <laughs> and not really knowing anything about it. Yeah. Well, I, I hope anyway, I mean, I'll take feedback from people, but I tried to put the big points in the book, like the text mm -hmm. and things like that. But if you want to go a step further than just the 
four or five sentences I wrote about every piece, I would listen to the oral tradition. So like I mentioned, you know, I grew up hearing these tunes. So I already had the colors and the hand claps and the stomps in my head because that's what I saw and heard people doing. But if you're not familiar with the tradition, Maybe you don't know that. So I always tell people, especially since many of these folk songs were sung, to listen to 10 recordings of the work and okay. listen to them in the vernacular. So people who are not trained and have conservatory degrees, you know, listen to them as people who are singing them in church or someone who's doing it for fun. And then you can compare. Of course, you could listen to a more educated performance, but folk songs come from the people, you know, they come yeah. from the indigenous people of whatever land it is, and they don't have music degrees. And most often they don't even read music. So being able to pick up on some of their syncopation patterns, the inflections in their voice, the different colors they use with different instruments can really inform your interpretation. Hmm. Okay, I like that suggestion of 10. That's good. Um, and of course, I'll link in the show notes to this publication of yours. So I want to pivot a little bit and change gears and talk about another area where I'm interested in kind of the overlap of how you think about this topic as a seasoned performer versus how you would approach it with a student who's perhaps not at your level. So this is uh, physical wellness. You've become very well known for speaking about physical wellness, and I understand this was inspired by your own personal journey overcoming an injury. So can you talk about how this transformation that you experienced as a concert artist working through technique and mobility and those sorts of topics has impacted your teaching of technique with your students, even including some of the younger students you work with? Oh, definitely. So I, my own story, and I'll just give you like the five second version of it as I, you know, injured myself, I would, I would say I succumbed to overuse injury. That might be a better way to put it in multiple areas of my body, which affected my piano playing in about my early to mid twenties. And I didn't play again. I won't even want to say professionally, but like a full recital until it's 30. So it was about six years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> of oh. no playing at all. And at the time I was teaching quite a few beginner students because I mean, I couldn't play, I couldn't do church gigs or anything like that. So I was playing a teaching a lot of beginning students and I couldn't even demonstrate things like Yankee doodles, just excruciatingly Aww. painful. Yeah, it's okay. I'm all done. I'm all good now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, that experience, you know, it leaves like a lifetime mark really when you're aspiring to something so young. And that's, and that's sad because you were saying earlier that partly what inspired you about the lessons you had growing up was that your teachers would always model everything for you. And now here you are in theory, wanting to model your students, but you can't because of this injury. Exactly. I, you know, I never put that together, but that's correct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. you were saying. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of my story. I, I got back to playing after six years of not playing and it's been really just like a, an amazing upward journey since then of not only becoming painful free, but also being able to reclaim my career. So I did all that through muscle activation techniques. And one of their big principles is your muscles are either working or they're not. So they're on or they're off. Okay. And so what they do is they go in and they recharge or start those nerve endings in with a manual technique. So, you know, being informed that way, of course, it's much more in depth than what I just said, really influences how I approach people at the piano. I think I understand much better that people have compensation patterns that we can't always see or understand. And so I really like students to just find the best 
best path for their body when they're trying technique. So I may offer several solutions and see which one they choose. Um, for the youngest students, I try to guide them with language that encourages freedom. Like instead of hold down the tie, I might say leave down the tie, which increases, it changes um, the tension that you might have in your finger, especially for those yeah. little ones who like to press, you know? Yes, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, leave it down. I just sit here, right? I don't have to push down in the chair, you know? So little things like that. I mean, all the way up to advanced level where you can talk about more complex technical motions and give them lots of options for their body and ask them what feels good. Yeah. So not to put you on the spot, but you mentioned these manual techniques earlier. I know this is an audio only podcast, but is there any of them that is explainable over audio (laughs) that you could describe that would give our listeners kind of a taste of what you're talking about? Not really. Okay, um, that's okay. That's okay. The, the only thing I can say is it's performed on a massage table, but it is not massage. Hmm. What I would encourage them to do is to go to muscleactivationtechniques.com. They can watch okay. videos and that would be a lot easier because I'll just butcher the, <laughs> the visual. Okay, that's great. I can completely link to that in the yeah. show notes. Um, so staying on this idea of kind of college age students and the more advanced students you work with, which I believe forms the bulk, if not the entirety of your studio today. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about working with college students? So do you see your approach with working these students as more comparable to your approach with the younger students who you had, you were saying before your first recital at age 30, so those younger students you work with at that time, or is it more comparable to your approach with some of your professional colleagues that you work with nowadays, or maybe a mix of both? That's a great question. I still have a few young students that I teach. Many of them are already late intermediate or advanced, Mm -hmm. but I I can't tell you the difference. Even, you know, I have like, you know, maybe a couple of beginners that I took. I got (laughs) convinced to take one actually recently. So (laughs) I have another one, but something that's really interesting when I teach children versus collegiate students is the language. So like I mentioned the tie, I think that's something easy for everyone to understand. Um, If I tell a child, leave it down, the child never questions me. (laughs) The older they get, they have more questions. They ask, well, why leave? Why not hold it? You know, so sometimes they've had so many different experiences with the piano that their own thinking about the tension that they need at the key is already formed and I'm trying to like gently unravel it to get rid of unnecessary tension but children are just like little sponges and you know if they trust you and you tell them oh leave or do this or if you move their hand they're like okay (laughs) you know there's not as much kind of pushback sometimes or or questioning um you know, it doesn't always happen at the older, with older students, but sometimes I, I find that's the difference is they want more explanations yeah. than kids. Yeah. Yeah. You at least, even if they aren't definitely going to push back, you have to be prepared for pushback, maybe in a way that you wouldn't with some of the younger students. Yeah. Um, so another advantage of sort of working with these students is I believe it gives you some kind of flexibility to bolster your performance career and you're still able to maintain a very busy performance schedule on top of working with these students. So I'm not quite sure exactly what ratio of time you spend nowadays performing versus teaching. And of course, COVID changes everything. But I assume it's still more performance heavy than most of our listeners. And I believe we probably have a lot of listeners who, although they might not aspire to go quite to your level of performance, would like to at least nudge in that direction or kind of bolster their performance schedule and 
have a little bit more performance opportunities than maybe they do now as a more full-time teacher. And you offered some very helpful feedback on this in a recent MTNA talk, which I can link in the show notes if our listeners would like a deep dive into this topic. But do you have any basic advice for teachers who would want to hold on to the stability of their current teaching situation, but still have a passion for performing? Absolutely. And I think, you know, something the pandemic probably taught a lot of us is not to have all our eggs in one basket. So (laughs) I think it's good if you can do teaching and performing and anything else that really you want to and you love to do in order to have that full career that you want. So as far as like bolstering your own performing, I think you have to take a look at, you know, where am I pianistically? Am I already playing a little bit somewhere? You know, do you have a church gig or like a late night gig at a club somewhere? Um, Or am I sort of starting over? I haven't taken lessons in a while. I haven't picked up a book of Beethoven sonatas and I don't know when. And so if you haven't been performing at all, I would say take a lesson, you know, in your local city, Maybe you can reach out to the local college professor and kind of explain what you want to do so that you can get your technique up to par, depending on where you want to play. And then a lot of cities have church recitals or maybe home concerts, or you can even host your own home concert or soiree. I think that's a great way to get started and do tips only. I mean, and then maybe it turns into a thing where you can actually start to charge. But if you're getting back into it and you haven't done it in a while, that's the places I would start. Excellent. That's great advice. So before we go, can you talk a little bit about what you're up to now and how everyone listening can learn more about you? Yeah. Well, you should all go out and buy the book, 24 Traditional African-American Folk Songs um, from Hal Leonard. And they actually have a whole folk songs series. So I would say any of them. Are the folk songs uh, series categorized by level or are they all more for intermediate pianists like your book is? They're all intermediate pianists. And I would say all of them, that's a good question. They actually start at the late beginner level. And then by the end, you're getting into late intermediate. So they have a range there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a great thing to look into. I'm starting to play again, Ben. So that's really exciting. I'll be in Dallas and I'll also be some other places um, in Texas and across the country really in the spring. So best place to find out where I'll be live is on my website at artinamccain.com. I'm on all the socials. I really like Instagram. So you can follow me at artinamccain there too. Excellent. And I will link to all of that in the show notes. Well, congratulations on your performance schedule starting up again. I'm sure that's very exciting after a very, very long hiatus. Um, so congratulations again on all of your success. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks again, Ben. Much, much um, blessings on your podcast and what you're doing. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Heat Up. I'll see you next time. 